Bill Gow adored his 2,500-acre farm. As an independent rancher, he could roam the countryside on his ATV anytime he chose. His peaceful Oregon plot was a relic of a bygone era. In the early 2000s, many American farms were owned by corporations or they were being sold for development. Many agricultural workers were giving up on the lifestyle. Not Gao. He was happy to keep working his land for the rest of his life. But everything was about to change. In 2004, a clean-cut official knocked on Gao's door. He told the rancher he represented a Canadian company that wanted to run a gas pipeline through Gao's land, and they were willing to pay handsomely to do so. Gao immediately waved the man away. He said, quote, I'm not interested. I don't want your pipeline, and I don't want your way of life. His rejection worked for 16 years. Gao eventually forgot about the oil company official, but the company didn't forget about Gao or his land. In March 2020, as the country was battling COVID-19, three American government officials sent a few emails back and forth. The subject was Gao's land in Oregon, almost 3,000 miles away. The Canadian company had filed a permit to acquire the farm. And the U.S. officials approved it. Gao was going to hand over his land, and there was nothing he could do to stop it. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. This season, we're asking, is someone trying to institute a new world order? And have they already succeeded? That's why I wanted to speak to you today about the new world taking shape around us, about the prospects for a new world order now within our reach. Here are movers and shakers of the corporations that basically control our lives, and they meet once a year behind closed doors and with armed guards, and uh, the news media, we don't get a peep out of it. They act like it's not happening. What do you think a new world order is? Well, basically, it's one government that controls the entire world. Last time, we discussed how secret societies have influenced the most powerful nations in the world, possibly paving the way for a new world order. Today, we're exploring how an NWO could control what you see, hear, or believe. We're asking, what tactics does the new world order use to secure its power? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. In 2020... After a gas pipeline was approved, Oregon rancher Bill Gow tried to ensure his land wouldn't be taken. Not only was he losing his private property, but it was going to a foreign entity, a Canadian oil company. He joined a group of activists to contest the construction. But Gow found that the bureaucracy was daunting. Important legal ideas like eminent domain, which allowed the government to seize land, were often obscured in confusing language. It seemed like it was overly complicated on purpose. Vital information was hidden from the people who needed it most by the entities that benefited most. This makes it easy for power to remain in the hands of decision-makers. And by controlling the flow of information through secrecy, propaganda, and misdirection, an NWO could easily retain power. This may sound like a conspiracy theory, but it's happened before. In Gao's case, a 2,500-acre ranch was at stake, but another secretive group used these tactics to take control of an entire island nation. The Hawaiian Islands were once a Polynesian kingdom, But in 1820, Christian missionaries from Boston arrived on Hawaiian shores. They hoped to live among the locals and convert them. But they quickly realized the islands were ideal for growing sugarcane. Within a few decades, the settlers went from importing Christ to exporting sugar. Lots of it. In 1874 alone, Hawaiian plantations shipped 25 million pounds of sugar to the United States. But the thriving sugarcane industry wasn't a sweet deal for the Hawaiians. The Americans brought new diseases to the islands, and by 1840, the indigenous population had declined by an alarming 84%. The farmers also instituted new policies on private property. It didn't take long for plantation owners to claim and cultivate much of the Hawaiian land. But for one ambitious lawyer, the sugarcane business still wasn't growing fast enough. Lauren A. Thurston was the grandson of the first two American missionaries to set foot on Hawaiian sand. Though he was born in Honolulu, he had many ties to the U.S. He even went to law school there. He was a fiery speaker and had grand ideas about the future. In 1887, Thurston worked as a clerk at a sugar company. He was well-connected with the plantation owners and saw there was a way to increase their profit margins. Thurston believed that if the U.S. government controlled Hawaii, any barriers to the sugar trade, like import taxes, would disappear. That would put more money in plantation owners' hands and in Thurston's pocket. 
He campaigned for and won a seat in the Hawaiian legislature. There, he argued for the end of the monarchy. His goal was simple. He wanted the United States to annex the Hawaiian kingdom. Unsurprisingly, the indigenous Hawaiians didn't seem eager to hand their nation over to the U.S. Thurston realized he would have to shroud his goals in secrecy to avoid dissent. So that January, he formed an organization called the Hawaiian League. This group was comprised of lawyers, financiers, and planters who sought to control the islands and the profits they represented. The League drafted a new proposed constitution for Hawaii, one that was very friendly to the white American landowners. This new constitution stripped King Kalakua of any legal power turning the monarchy into a figurehead. It also tied voting rights to land ownership. Since most indigenous Hawaiians didn't own land, over 75% of the population would be disenfranchised. Thurston knew that King Kalakua would never sign the Constitution willingly, nor would most Hawaiians ever accept it. The king was deeply committed to the island's independence, and he had the people's support. But Thurston was determined to get King Kalakua's signature, even if he had to do so by force. Thurston formed an alliance with a local militia comprised of white businessmen. With their help, he imported weapons from foreign countries. By that July, he had 900 guns and plenty of ammunition stored in Honolulu. With the insurgents backing him, Thurston went to King Kalakua's palace to discuss his proposed constitution. When he saw the dozens of armed men outside his home, Kalakua reluctantly signed the Hawaiian League's proposed legislation. It became known as the Bayonet Constitution, and it changed the balance of power in Hawaii forever. A group of white plantation owners and businessmen, through an armed insurrection, had successfully stripped the monarch of his power. And the whole coup was planned in secret. The takeover demonstrated how much Thurston could accomplish behind a veil of secrecy. But even with the bayonet constitution in place, Thurston's primary goal, handing Hawaii to the U.S., was still out of reach. And unfortunately for him, a new enemy was rising to power. When King Kalakua died in 1891, his sister Queen Liliuokalani took the throne. She and her supporters wanted to give power back to the people and undo the bayonet constitution. In 1893, she drafted a new constitution, but just before she revealed it to the public, her advisors told her to wait. They claimed she needed more popular support, even though a massive crowd had already gathered for her announcement. The advice seemed suspicious, and the queen knew something was afoot. But she didn't realize she was dealing with a double agent. Cabinet Minister John F. Colburn quietly alerted several diplomats to the queen's plan, including Lauren Thurston. The night he heard the news, Thurston gathered with his conspirators at a local attorney's office. He called the group the Committee of Safety, and it consisted of 13 American and British lawyers and businessmen. He told them the Queen was preparing to undo his hard work and dissolve the bayonet constitution. This time around, Thurston wanted to seize control of Hawaii permanently. 
Thurston knew that a U.S. Navy cruiser, the USS Boston, had just docked in Honolulu. He could leverage his American connections and the armed ship's presence to force the Queen to step down. However, the United States was still a foreign power. If its navy appeared to be invading, the indigenous Hawaiians might rise up. Thurston needed to make sure the public never knew about the coming coup. Early the next morning, Thurston called on two of the Queen's advisors, including the traitorous Colburn. He told them to declare the Queen a revolutionary and instate a provisional government. Then the minister to the U.S., one of Thurston's connections, could order the troops from the USS Boston to support them. The plan ensured the committee and any advisors willing to join them could take full control of Hawaii. Nobody would ever know they'd planned the invasion. They'd look like concerned patriots trying to stop a reckless queen. Coming up, a new plot changes Hawaii forever. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. When Lauren Thurston's treasonous plans became public, Queen Lili Uokalani's supporters were alarmed. On January 16, 1893, nearly 1,000 peaceful protesters gathered in the palace square in support of the monarchy. It seemed Thurston's Committee of Thirteen was vastly outnumbered. 
but they still had the U.S. Navy at their disposal because one of the committee members had a direct line to the U.S. government. John L. Stevens was the U.S. Minister to the Hawaiian Kingdom and an ardent believer in Manifest Destiny. He was resolved that Hawaii was going to be a part of the United States one way or another. All he had to do was invent an impending threat to Hawaii. In other words, he needed a thesis. Once again, Hegelian dialectics played a role in a secret power grab. Thurston drafted a letter to Stevens that falsely painted the queen as a bloodthirsty dictator. He claimed she posed a danger to her subjects' lives and property. It didn't matter that it was a bold-faced lie. Thurston knew that by appealing to the U.S. military's fear of foreign aggression, Stevens could request naval protection in Hawaii, the antithesis. It worked. The Navy leadership acted quickly on the so-called threat. 162 armed troops marched through the streets of Honolulu. A day later, Thurston and the Committee of Safety declared that the monarchy was over and a provisional government would take control. By nightfall, Queen Liliuokalani saw history repeat itself. Just like her brother, she watched the militia gather in the streets. Fearing for her life, she abdicated the throne. The coup d'etat was successful. Overnight, the island of Hawaii went from a free kingdom to a provisional government ruled by the U.S. Five years later, the United States officially annexed Hawaii. The indigenous people lost their kingdom, and the Americans became rich. The synthesis. Thurston had succeeded in his ultimate goal. He left politics for business, and without the export taxes on sugar, he was wildly successful. All thanks to secrecy, fear, and misdirection. The exact kind of tactics that a new world order might use to seize power. Groups like Thurston's Committee of Safety or the pipeline company coming after Bill Gow's ranch land work best in the shadows. Likewise, the NWO could shift power in subtle and gradual ways, and we'd never know it. All they'd have to do to cover their tracks is silence their victims. For example, in 1896, not long after Thurston's coup, the Hawaiian language was banned from schools. Hawaiian businesses were required to use English. While some claimed this would ensure that all the locals could speak the same tongue, it also kept many indigenous people from criticizing the government. The dark truth about the monarchy and the coup was largely written in Hawaiian. Much of it was lost to history. Essentially, the culture was erased. This is alarming, but censorship isn't even the most insidious tactic at the NWO's disposal. By using propaganda to influence public thought, the NWO could encourage people to believe they're the good guys. We might even end up rooting for them. This has happened before. In March 1981, Italian police raided a Tuscan villa that belonged to a powerful banker named Licio Gelli. Gelli was a proud fascist and even claimed that his lifelong goal was to be, quote, a puppet master. Based on what the cops found in his home, he wasn't far from achieving it. 
they discovered a list with thousands of names on it, legislators, military leaders, and Secret Service officers. All these people belonged to a secret Masonic lodge called P2, and Jelly was their leader. The investigators were shocked. P2 seemed to have influence over every part of Italian culture. Some referred to it as a synarchism, or a state within a state. In a 2008 interview, Jelly said, quote, We had Italy in our hands. A budding television tycoon named Silvio Berlusconi was on the list. Before he eventually became Italy's prime minister, Berlusconi created Canale 5, the first national private TV network. If Jelly, or the New World Order, wanted a certain message to reach the public, Canale 5 would have been the perfect platform. And Jelly knew the power of television and propaganda. In a 1980 TV news interview, he spoke openly about his love of fascist values and his desire to rewrite the Italian constitution. The anchor who interviewed him was another P2 member. Together, they had the resources to manipulate the messaging to appeal to their viewers. The public came to watch the news, and they got Jelly's rhetoric instead. It was a prime example of using TV news as a vehicle for propaganda. But Jelly went even further. He wanted more control over all the media. A few years before the 1980 interview, a newspaper named the Corriere della Sera had run into financial trouble. Conservative banks weren't happy with the editor-in-chief's outspoken criticism of the Christian Democrats, a right-leaning party. Their pushback left the paper struggling to raise funds. Before it went under, Jelly arranged a cash injection from a Vatican bank. In exchange, the editor-in-chief was replaced with a member of the P2 Lodge. Behind the scenes, Jelly had control over the newsroom and on one occasion attempted to fire a journalist who didn't fall in line. The paper's editorial bias abruptly shifted to the right blaming communists for Italy's ills. Likewise, the NWO could accomplish a lot with propaganda and media control. We may believe in journalistic integrity and ethics, but in reality, we don't know if what we read is true. The NWO could buy up news channels, newspapers, magazines, and then publish propaganda. If all the news media present the same information, who will think to question it? To make matters worse, misinformation can spread without media outlets. Because these days, the audience is the news source. Online forums, social media, and instant messaging have changed the world. These tools make it easy for individuals to pass information back and forth directly. We don't have to go to the media for news anymore. Each and every friend, family member, and influencer can keep us informed. Or so we think. This means that propaganda can be even more difficult to spot than it was in 19th century Hawaii or in 1970s Italy. Additionally, misinformation is especially effective on the internet. For example, YouTube's algorithms promote inflammatory and right-wing content. You might click on a video about vaccines, hoping to learn new information, but instead, the site leads you to conspiracy theory videos. 
YouTube's main goal is to keep you engaged, no matter what you're watching. The best way to do this is to appeal to heightened emotions. After all, when we're upset about an issue, we spend time on it. Talking, thinking, and clicking. Not only that, social media puts this power in the hands of literally anyone with an account. Tech companies might be responsible for spreading misinformation, but it's the users who post the content in the first place. This means we all might be unwittingly helping the NWO further their agenda. Coming up, when the New World Order gains power, disaster follows. Now back to the story. Using secrecy and propaganda, the New World Order can manipulate us into unwittingly supporting them. That way, we won't only allow them to rule over our lives, we'll beg them to. All they need to do is give us something to fear. Like how, on the morning of June 19, 1986, a 22-year-old named Len Bias died of cardiac arrest. He was a rising basketball star at the University of Maryland and in peak physical condition. But after his death, doctors discovered cocaine in his system. This became headline news, which spawned investigations into the possible widespread use of the drug. The U.S. Senate even created a task force to tackle the cocaine epidemic. As the recent death of University of Maryland basketball star Len Bias clearly demonstrates Cocaine kills. Those whom it doesn't kill, it destroys in other ways, ultimately driving many to lives of crime and violence. A panic swept the nation. In 1986, President Reagan signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. This established new mandatory minimum prison sentences for cocaine possession. The fear reached a fever pitch in 1989 when President George H.W. Bush made a televised address in the Oval Office. He held up a sealed plastic bag with four crack cocaine rocks inside. As the camera zoomed in on the grimy white chunks, he said, This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It's as innocent-looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones. The message was clear. If drugs were being sold across the street from the White House, then they had to be available everywhere. There was an immediate public outcry and a wave of drug arrests nationwide. The crackdown was extensive. But it was all based on misinformation. Crack cocaine wasn't actually sweeping through the United States. It wasn't actually being sold outside the White House. That had been Bush's speechwriter's idea. The White House chief of staff had the police lure a teenage dealer to a nearby park and arrest him there. Technically, Bush didn't lie, but he did fudge the truth to instill fear in the American public. This kept citizens fixated on the so-called war on drugs, which meant the public wasn't paying attention to the officials' real motives. In 1994, John Ehrlichman, a former Nixon aide, outlined the strategy the administration used against their political enemies. He said, quote, 
We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. The War on Drugs and the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 had a devastating impact on the black community. They led to racial profiling by police and questionable arrests. And today, studies show that black people are nearly three times more likely to be killed by police than white people. That's why the recent deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor were so painful. These individuals were a few of many and seemed to reflect a larger campaign to persecute the powerless. Bill Gow may have lost his land to the government, but by exaggerating the danger of cocaine, over two million Americans lost their freedom. The U.S. has less than 5% of the global population, but almost 25% of its prisoners. So the war on drugs was another Hegelian dialectic, a convenient cover that paved the way for the U.S. government to punish activists and racial minorities. And as you've no doubt noticed, this tactic keeps resurfacing. It's one of the most powerful tools the NWO has. And in 1903, Hegelian dialectics were used with brutal efficiency. That year, the Russian city of Kishinev was simmering with tension. Local Christians were suspicious of the Jewish minority in town, thanks in part to an onslaught of anti-Semitic articles printed by the local newspaper. A staunch ultra-nationalist named Pavel Khrushchevon ran the paper, and he used it to disseminate his hateful views. In April, the simmering tensions boiled over. A 14-year-old Christian boy was found murdered. Around the same time, a housemaid died from poisoning. Khrushchevon wrote articles blaming Jewish people for the deaths. He said they needed the victim's blood for secret rituals. But Jewish people had nothing to do with either case. The Christian boy was murdered by a family member, and the housemaid had died of suicide. But the truth didn't matter. The misinformation was widely accepted as truth. Many local Christians used the story as justification to commit hate crimes against their Jewish neighbors. They rioted in the streets, chanting, kill the Jews. They destroyed homes, tore babies from their mother's arms, and raped women. The police did nothing, and within just a few days, 49 Jewish people were murdered. Later that year, Khrushchevon painted another anti-Semitic story in his paper. Supposedly, it was a first-hand account of a clandestine meeting of Jewish leaders who allegedly called themselves the Elders of Zion. Khrushchevon's paper claimed this secret cabal was scheming to conquer the world. They allegedly used the same strategies we mentioned earlier, sowing discontent and using propaganda to control nations from behind closed doors. There's still some debate about who wrote the so-called Protocols of the Elders of Zion, but Khrushchevon was the first one to publish the work. And like his allegations about the poison maid and the murdered boys, these claims were all fictional. However, the story was seductive. 
It provided a scapegoat for Russia's complicated social and political problems. It turned a complex situation into a satisfying case of good versus evil. And since the protocols didn't contain any names, dates, or locations, it was nearly impossible to disprove. Fourteen years after the protocols were first published, Vladimir Lenin led a group of communist revolutionaries to overthrow the Russian Tsar. They renamed their country the Soviet Union, establishing the world's first Marxist state. But the defeated loyalists wanted to discredit Lenin and smear the Bolsheviks. So Tsarist publishers translated the protocols into many languages, claiming that Lenin's revolution was financed by the mysterious Elders of Zion. They sent copies across the globe. In the United States, car manufacturer and avowed anti-Semite Henry Ford was enthralled by the conspiracy theory. He even published his own anti-Semitic work titled The International Jew. Finally, in 1921, a London newspaper exposed the protocols of the Elders of Zion as a lie. They uncovered a document they believed to be the original source material an 1868 Prussian novel in which Hebrew leaders met in a cemetery in Prague. Other segments were plagiarized from political satirist Maurice Joly's The Dialogue in Hell Between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. But even after they were debunked, the protocols still spread like wildfire and stoked anti-Semitic sentiments in the U.S. They contributed to the burgeoning Red Scare, which inspired Congress to pass the Sedition Act. This empowered the authorities to monitor union leaders and leftists. Worst of all, the protocols helped justify the deaths of millions of European Jewish people. Adolf Hitler was introduced to the protocols in the early 1920s. He referenced the text in many of his early speeches. His German Nazi party published at least 23 editions. And when they officially seized control of the nation in 1933, teachers taught the protocols as though they were fact. Hitler capitalized on people's fear to portray Jewish people as a problem, and he presented himself as the solution. While Hitler's bid to rule the world eventually failed, the Holocaust he authorized left a horrific scar on human history. Even if Hitler wasn't part of the NWO, he proved how brutally effective their tactics can be. And to this day, when you think of a new world order, you most likely imagine shadowy world leaders huddled in dark rooms, pulling the strings that manipulate nations. But these images came straight from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And since its creation, this anti-Semitic hoax was used to draw scrutiny away from the true oppressors, the monarchs, fascists, and dictators. While we cower in fear of an imagined enemy, typically a vulnerable minority, the real New World Order can capitalize on that terror, enact laws, and seize control. So when a news anchor presents a story about some dangerous group supposedly threatening the American way of life, Take a moment to question who's actually behind the story. Chances are you'll uncover a familiar tactic in which fear is distracting you from the real threat.
Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with something a little different. A supplemental mini-sode where we take a deeper dive into some of the issues we brought up today. We'll examine why misinformation is so effective, the ways people can manipulate Google algorithms, and ask, when it comes to online information, how can we know what's true? You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Ben Caro, with writing assistance by Andrew Messer and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Chelsea Wood. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances, and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.